Uh, Please remain standing as you're able. The scripture this morning should appear on the screen. It's from Paul's letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is right at the start almost, beginning in verse 10. Would you join me? We'll read it together. There's a couple, um, uh, there'll be foreign sounding names. The key to that is just act like you know, say it with confidence and it'll be okay. (laughs) Will you join me? I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, To live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. For now no one can say they were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. But I don't remember baptizing anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Okay, I did. Hi, Maya. Yeah, there was a problem with the sound at 9.30, and theologically, we really struggled. We didn't know if that was an act of God or the evil one. So anyway, we're switching over uh, this, this morning. Um, I want to tell you about a, a series that's coming, and it's pretty interesting because it involves sex, power struggles, death, parties that go way over the top, infighting, and marital struggles. Now, it's not coming to your TV. It's actually coming here to the church. Because, quite frankly, the series is about the church. It's about the church in Corinth in the letter of First Corinthians. They had every problem imaginable. And we're going to spend the summer here on the Alma Heights campus in the Sanctuary New Heights Looking at that, and uh, basically, if I were to tell you about the Church of Corinth, the way to summarize it is that's a church with issues, big issues. Now, next Sunday night, just parenthetically, at 5 o'clock, I'm going to do an overview of uh, Corinth for anyone interested to kind of learn more because we can't on Sunday morning uh, delve into it uh, as deeply. But suffice to say that occasionally I will hear people lament that they wish their church was a New Testament church. And I'm thinking to myself when I think of Corinth, no, you don't. That's the last thing you want. There are all sorts of struggles in the New Testament, and we get hit by a struggle right away this morning. Now, the typical Greco-Roman style of writing a letter, and you'll see it in some of Paul's other letters, is first, interestingly, the writer is identified. So I, David, and then I identify the target audience or the recipients of the letter, um, write to you wonderful uh, worshipers at New Heights. 
And, and then I will tell God how thankful I am, some sort of thanksgiving. And then there's usually a wish for prosperity or health or, or, uh, or a compliment. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul does the, I'm Paul, uh, servant of, or slave to Jesus Christ, talks about who the Corinthians are, gives thanks for them, and then skips the good wishes for their health and goes right into what we read this morning, which is, you've got a problem. I've heard from Chloe's people. Now, we don't really know who Chloe's people are. Was Chloe someone who lived in Corinth and, and was watching the church uh, disintegrate and sent word to Paul? Or did she live in Ephesus with Paul and just word had come from people she knew in Corinth? But either way, she said, these people are dividing, and they're dividing around different spiritual leaders. They're dividing around different um, pastors. Now, part of that, I think, is, is kind of understandable. Um, uh, they, they, some said, well, you know, I'm with Paul, and why not? Paul founded that church. And others said, well, I'm with Apollos, and why not Apollos, as um, Daryl will probably talk about in a couple weeks. Apollos was a very learned man, very skilled in rhetoric. He was an Alexandrian. He had some panache. And, uh, and so he came, and he spoke, and others would say, I'm with Peter. We don't even know that Peter ever made it to Corinth, but hey, he hung out pretty tight with Jesus for three years, so he'd be a good guy to follow. And then others said, well, I'm with Christ. Now, we don't know if they were saying they were above the fray or not. Uh, It's kind of hard to know how to take that one, except uh, some uh, weeks ago, my wife and I went to Scotland. And as you may know, the Church of Scotland is basically what we would call Presbyterians here in the United States. Wonderful people. But on numerous tours, we heard the same line. They would say, well, you know, for the Catholic Church, the head of the church is the Pope. And for the Church of England, the head of the church is the queen. But for the Church of Scotland, the head of the church is Jesus Christ. Yeah, and we were like, well, we're Methodists. What are we, chopped liver? Um, And, you know, we didn't really take that as a compliment. So it's hard to know who these factions are. But it's understandable in historical context. You see, one of the great sports in the day was actually the sport of uh, speech giving, or what we'd call rhetoric. Uh, persuasive speeches, after-dinner speeches, and it became quite a contest. And just as gladiators could get wealthy fighting, people could get wealthy uh, speaking. And so great speakers would come into town, they'd give a speech, and then you'd decide, well, I think I liked his speech better than that speech. And and speech makers eventually even made disciples, were like, well, I think I'm with this guy, and I want to learn his deal. So it was was a competition like Dancing with the Stars, only the the cast doesn't change. It's the same guys, they do it for a living, and they go to town after town. And so people in the church, I assume, are used to this sort of thing. Well, somebody's given a talk, you know, we'll give it like, oh, I give it a seven, I give it a six. Well, Apollos, I give a nine. You know, they, so it's understandable from that point of view. And certainly we in church today understand that sometimes people will sort of divide around, well, I like the way the last pastor did it, or oh, I like the way the original, original pastor did it. There was a church in New England, a Methodist church, and, uh, and a guy had been there 15 years and left, and his predecessor came, and he just got ambushed. They had all sorts of complaints about him, but their main complaint was, he doesn't do communion right. And so he's like, well, I did it like I learned in school. And, and they said, no, when he finishes a communion prayer, he doesn't come over and do his hands like this. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Show me. And they said, well, you just, you're not doing it right. And so they walk back into the sanctuary, and he walks through communion. What he does, he does the great prayer of thanksgiving to God. And then he goes over to start communion. They go, see there, you didn't do it right. He said, what am I supposed to do? He said, you're supposed to walk over here and hold your hands. Well, 
where? Over here. And it was a heater, a radiator. And his predecessor for 15 years had been warming his hands before he served the communion bread. And they thought that's the way communion goes. And so we know, you know, I came here 21 years ago. I followed a wonderful man uh, who was a, a great predecessor and, and, and a good encouragement to me. But one of the things that he did on Sunday morning that was different was that he would preach from the very new and very large pulpit, which if you've ever been up there, it's kind of like being on the brow of a ship, you know. It's like, you know, I'm the captain of the world. And, uh, and that's just, I wasn't comfortable, so I didn't do that. So it was like, you're not doing it right. I, I heard a lot of that. So I, I get sometimes that we can be like that. And, and so not only within a church, sometimes within a city, you know how different people will um, kind of get behind a pastor and oppose your pastor with their pastor. You know, well, I go to pastor so-and-so's church. Well, I go to pastor so-and-so's church. And a friend of mine calls it this. He says basically what we engage in is my pastor can beat up your pastor. And um, and the great thing about Alma Heights is the senior pastor is 60 years old and bald, so nobody's claiming much of anything for him. But that does happen, you know, and not only on a local level, but, of course, on a national, international level, we take it, uh, we make it an even larger issue. Do you know how many denominations, Christian denominations, there are in the world? 40,000. 40,000. Paul said... <laughs> You know, wasn't, was Paul crucified for you? Wasn't it Jesus? And yet we've got 40,000 strains of following Jesus. So we do that. And then we do it uh, as well, just in kind of nationally. I know you've never seen it, but let me tell you, it's out there. Occasionally, some people will take a stand on Facebook for something that they think is a Christian principle. And somebody else, will, another Christian, will write something very mean about it. I know you've never seen that, but, but it's out there. Um, I was listening to a podcast from two pastors in the U.K. So they are, you know, they're not always the kindest toward America. Um, but they described what's going on in America now is they said, hell has hath no fury like an evangelical scorned. And what they're saying is it's not just true of evangelicals, it's true of people that would claim to be more uh, of, a, of another stripe. But we just, we just turn on each other over Christian issues and turn so quickly and uh, with such ferocity and that over, and I know they've got their issues over there, but they're like, whoa, when they look at that. And then the United Methodists, which I'm a part of, we're not much better. You know, we spend millions of dollars to have an every four-year annual meeting. We had one in Portland two weeks ago, and most of the time, uh, five of the ten days was spent fighting each other. And then finally, somebody decided to table the most divisive issue, so the fighting slowed down for just a moment. And it's all in the name of Jesus. Now, what's interesting to me is there's a scholar who's writing about in 1 Corinthians, and he said the one word I can think of for this today is the word, and it's a word Paul would have used, scandalous. It's scandalous, he said, that the body of Christ can be divided and subdivided in so many ways. Because Paul's first word and first concern to the Corinthians was, get it together. Be united. You don't have to agree on everything, but be united. And that, interestingly, was about the last word of Jesus. John 17. Um, uh, some people call it the real Lord's Prayer. Jesus prays for an entire chapter. And in the entire chapter of John 17, the night in which he washed the feet of the disciples, the night in which he's betrayed, he asks the Father uh, that his disciples would be one. 
And so um, what I'd like to suggest is that the overriding problem, more important than the sex problem, more important than the money problem, more important than what do we do about people dying, all sorts of things they had issues with in Corinth. The number one problem for Paul was they don't get along with each other. They don't get along with each other. It was the disunity. So I thought about it. What are some of the problems with disunity? And I would, I would just categorize them in two ways. One is there's sort of internal problems with this disunity, which is basically this. Following Christ is difficult enough uh, to do uh, without people opposing us in, us in trying to follow Christ. That there's something about the Christian faith, to, to borrow the old phrase, it takes a village. It's, it's, it's so challenging to be who God has called us to be in Christ that we need each other and we need the support of each other to try to get where Christ wants us um, to go. I don't know if you saw this, this is, of course, Memorial Day weekend, and we owe a tremendous debt to people who sacrifice uh, whether they agreed politically uh, whether they were in the same branch of the service, they sacrificed and brought us to this point. But um, I don't know if you saw this past week, but a number of wounded warriors climbed Mount Everest. Did you see that? And did you notice it wasn't just one? There was a group. There's an adage, apparently, about mountain climbing that you can go higher together than you can go alone and I'm wondering if that's not also true of the Christian faith, that to, we can go higher, we can go deeper uh, when we're encouraging and supporting each, each other. So I think there's an internal cost. There's also a cost internally when you're opposing me, not that we have to agree, but part of the opposition comes off as if I am, in, I am less in Jesus than you are. Or the person disagrees with me is, is wrong, therefore, but not only wrong, but they are somehow out of step with Jesus. I'm in step, but they're not. And so there's a, a price that's almost paid in my identity in Christ uh, by disunity. And then quite frankly, if we all have to believe and practice exactly the same thing, we're not going to make much progress because I think it's the diversity that makes the body of Christ. That we have the common Lord and Savior who died for each of us and rose again for each of us. And we have the common purpose of joining him in the advancing of God's kingdom. But we'll do it in different ways and different styles. And when I rule you out, I think that hurts the entire body. Uh, there's a retired professor at Harvard, Rosabeth Lost Cantor, who said this some years ago. She said, the problems in the world are too many and the geniuses are too few to lead the solutions in the hands of just a couple of people. In other words, it takes all of us, the problems of this world, working together. And when we're not united, we actually begin to hurt our opportunity to be a part of God's advancing kingdom in this world. Now, I'm not saying we have to all agree. We, we, the body of Christ has, as we'll talk about later this summer, has got arms and eyes and, and ears and then a mouth. And, uh, and we're all needed in our differences. And some of us theologically are a little bit here. Some are a little bit here. And, and we're needed. Some of us more responsive and tuned uh, to the Holy Spirit. Others of us perhaps more in tune to the Holy Spirit working through the text. And, and we're all needed. Some of us very good at serving. Others of us very good at motivating. And, and all of us are needed. So there's a, there's a price that the body pays for disunity. And then externally there's a price our witness pays to the world when we remain this divided. What does it say to those who don't know the love of Christ when those who claim that love spend their time bashing each other? Um, there's a writer that said some years ago that the best argument for Christianity is Christians. 
And then he went on to say, and the worst argument for Christianity is Christians. Again, not that we all hold the same beliefs, but that we at least treat each other with appropriate uh, respect and we stay at the table with each other. We share a common scripture. Let's, let's, let's wrestle our way through this um, together. And when we don't do that and we immediately just bash those, uh, and I'm as guilty of it as, as anybody has been, um, that, that hurts our witness in the whole community. And then we become fodder for the world. You probably remember, and this is just typical of what people think of the church. You probably remember that episode from The Simpsons some years ago. The Flanders have come home. They're in the driveway, and they ask the Flanders, where have you been? You've been gone all summer. And they said, we were at church camp where we learned how to be more judgmental. You know, and that's, you know, that's the, that's the Simpsons' take on the church. And you can hardly, in some ways, blame them. Not that we all agree, but that we treat when we disagree with each other. With um, with respect, um, there is a Yale theologian who um, is is important to me because he's kind of been there, done that. He's from uh, Bosnia. He went through the ethnic cleansing. Well, he survived it. He watched Christians kill each other. Christians kill Muslims. Muslims kill Christians. Muslims kill Muslims. He watched that whole thing, and this is one of the things he said not too long ago. His name is Miroslav Volf, V O L F. He said, what we've done is we've uh, taken standing on principle uh, aggressively against other people and we've turned it into a virtue. When he said, I wonder in the New Testament if standing on principle aggressively against others might be more of a vice. It's not that we don't take a stand and not that you don't say, well, I'm not where you are, David, on that. And I'm like, okay, I get that and let's but that we take it in a way that dehumanizes and bashes and devalues the other person. And then the people who believe like we do pat us on the back and say, way to stand for Jesus. And then Jesus, I'm wondering, is going, I don't know, not exactly what I had in mind. Um, I'm not saying anything goes. I'm saying, but when we're on different sides, can we open our hearts one to another and remain at least respectful, and then the world looks and they see a group that respects and loves one another. Remember that um, uh, one pagan is riding another, it's a famous thing in the second century, and his comment about those darn Christians is he says, see how they love each other. And it just aggravates the fool out of the Romans because the Christians have a witness that you just can't top because they love each other. Well, if disunity is such a problem in Paul's mind, uh, and I think it's a problem, at least among Methodists today, is there any sort of answer Paul would have? Well, I think part of the answer I see is this last, um, and it's not sarcastic. I mean, it's just, it's a preacher grasping at things. He says, look, was I baptized for any of you? You know, I baptized a couple of you, but you weren't baptized in my name. And he uses baptism as the thing that unites them. You may or may not be familiar that one of the important things about baptism, whether you're a three-month-old or a 33-year-old, is it confers on you symbolically the identity of beloved son or daughter of God. Now, we might argue it, you know, whether a person has to realize that before they're baptized or not, but the symbol is still the same. Because at the, the baptism of Jesus, the clouds opened, the Father spoke, and what does he say? What does God say? This is my son. Um, I love him. 
with him, and he brings me joy or he brings me pleasure, depending on your interpretation. And so every baptism is a chance for the heavens to open briefly and say, this is a daughter of mine. She's a daughter. He's a son. And I'm wondering if Paul is saying if we, were, we would rest more in our identity as beloved sons or daughters, then we'd have less need to stake out our territory and protect it against other people. I'm wondering if, we, if I would live more into my love if I could tolerate you not holding the same opinion about the scripture that I have. I'm wondering um, uh, if uh, a great author on prayers put it this way, when we come before Jesus, we have nothing to prove and nothing to protect. I'm wondering if I knew that whatever you believed and practiced within the bounds of the Christian faith uh, wasn't diminishing my own worth and value would I deal with you perhaps in a more appropriate and Christ-like manner? I think sometimes we divide over what people believe or don't believe, and, and that's not unimportant. Don't hear me say that. But I'm wondering if it's more important to first focus on what does God believe? And I think God believes in each one of us more even than we believe in God. And if we focus first our identity as beloved sons and daughters of God in Jesus Christ, guided and empowered and by the Holy and empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we focus on that, then I think I have less need to protect my reputation or my stance, my position, my church. I'm wondering biblically if we could argue that it's not so much that we have a territory we need to protect as it is we have a people that we need to love. Pray with me. We bless you, O Lord, our God. We thank you, ruler of the universe, that you have given us our life, you've sustained our life, and here you've brought us together in this season of life. And we're different from one another in some different practices, some different beliefs, but you have died for each of us, and we are in you and you are in us. May we be united of one heart as we go forward in your love to this world. This we ask in your son's name. Amen.